The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Today is the sixth day of our winter seven-day session, 4th of July 2019. And we left off in the section where um, Bodhidharma looked into craving nothing as a practice. But um, before we get we go back into into our text, um, just want to um, say a little bit about craving. The Pali word for craving is is tanha, uh, trishna in in Sanskrit, and um, it's it's closest in meaning to thirst and is um, divided into three different kinds of thirst that we're afflicted with. Kama tanha, bhava tanha and vibhava tanha. So uh, kama tanha, this is K-A-M-A, is the thirst for um, pleasure, stimulation, comfort, gratification, entertainment, all the different ways in which um, we can uh, excite the senses, the six senses, that's the five ordinary sentences and, and the intellect is the sixth. And, and all of these are, are, are either restricted or absent in Sashin. So um, craving for uh, one or more of the things that, that come out of these categories is, is likely in Sishin. The second grouping is Bhavatana, B-H-A-V-A. And uh, Bhava is generally translated as becoming. So Bhavatana is is our basic desire to get somewhere or be something or someone and of course it includes uh, being a good Zen student or a spiritual person helping others even so it can it can um, cover what we might think of as being lofty aspirations If they are caught up with this, the sense of becoming, then they can be, um, they can get in, get in the way, become obstructions. A very common one in Sashin, and we we talk about this all the time, is the um, wanting to um, get into special states in our sitting, wanting to be calm or undistracted, wanting Kensho, or even you know, aspiring to Buddhahood, deep realization. We chant in the, in the um, Heart Sutra, attainment too is emptiness. 
we, we create an idea of something, put it out there, and then wish to reach it. The, the third category is vibhava tanha. And, and this um, is uh, the opposite of becoming negating, destroying, denying. So Vibhava Tanha covers all the different ways in which we, we, we reject our circumstances. And, and one of the earlier practices that we looked at Bodhidharmas was um, to accept our circumstances as to um, not practice vibhavatana. So in, under this one we could also class our self-loathing, um, but also quite minor things, irritation, resentment, anger of course, grudges we might hold, and and these more, more minor um, negative emotions can uh, go all the way up to, to hatred and cruelty. But in Sishin we, we uh, encounter this probably more in the, in the realm of things like um, holding back, not giving ourselves fully to our practice. Pushing away unpleasant states, unpleasant thoughts, disturbing emotions. Waiting for something to end is, is part of Vibhava Tanha. Waiting for it to end, wanting it to end. And it could be the round or the sashin or the, the, the state that we're currently in at that moment. So it encompasses all of impatience and intolerance and just generally arguing with things as they are. So Tanha covers a lot of ground. Ajahn Sumedho, the um, t uh, elder of the Thai forest tradition in, in um, Britain, said when you see you really see the origin of suffering you realize that the problem is the grasping of desire not the desire itself to have desires is to be human it's to be alive um, but this word de desire doesn't quite capture what we're talking about i think tanha thirst is is it's much closer to it because it has this, the sense of kind of urgency or or um, instinctiveness in it. If we look into the into the um, etymology of the word desire, it comes from Latin, um, possibly from desidere, which means um, to await what the stars will bring so, so it's much more of a much more receptive to await what the stars will bring 
It's beautiful. So it's, it's got a softer, more open feel to it than thirst. And Ajahn Sumedho points to the fact that it's not the desires that are the problem, but the grasping at them. You can perhaps understand this um, a little better if we, we look at um, the um, part of the 12 links of dependent co-arising. This is a teaching, um, uh, early, very, very important teaching of the Buddhas, where he looks into how suffering arises in us. And, and in fact, he traced back from his own suffering, the kind of um, self-investigation, and came up with these 12 links. And when it, we haven't got time to go into all of them, but then there's one part um, which looks at how, how uh, consciousness and, and suffering arise in, in an embryo. So um, a fetus in the womb starts to develop the sense faculties. So, so seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and uh, discerning. And, and as these, these um, sense faculties um, mature, they enable the fetus to, to uh, respond to its environment. And so that leads to, to this, the contact. You can't have contact without sense faculties. So then there's this contact between this um, uh, emerging being and uh, its environment. And that inevitably leads to sensation. And here by sensation what is meant is, is um, a feeling tone. Either the contact is experienced as being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And that leads to, to desire or tanha, thirst, and of course aversion which is just the other side of it. So uh, it's here that we have tanha, the reaction to the three feeling tones. See, so um, desire, aversion and indifference. So here we're moving into the into the zone of I want, I don't want, or I don't care. And then in this chain, then those um, lead to clinging, and this is the part where where the, where it becomes really problematical. This is where the the grasping and and rejecting and ignoring become more entrenched. One, one teacher described this as um, it's gone beyond mere thirsting after something into the realm of um, my happiness depends on A, B or C happening or not happening. So this is where we, we bind ourselves, we lose our freedom, you could say. And this is always also the, the point where the chain can be 
broken in the sense that the desires are going to arise, but um, we can we have some choice about whether we cling to them or not, reject them. So in, in this term tanha or thirst, there's, there's um, um, this kind of implication or that you can see the direction it is going in towards the clinging. So not so much the desire that's the problem, but the, the grasping of desire. The, the mistaken notion that our that our happiness depends on fulfilling the desire. Bodhidharma in his, in his um, teaching he says, um, to crave nothing is bliss. So if, if, if there's no craving, then bliss is what is there when that craving is absent. So again, it's, it's, not, it's not something we need to acquire. And that, that goes also for um, the flip side of, of, of the craving, the aversion. And under, under both of those is this basic delusion of self and other. There's a little um, story that um, illustrates this, uh, this contrast between, between craving and the absence of craving. And it's a story about uh, Alexander the Great. Um, and in his um, travels and his, during his conquests, he met um, an Indian uh, shramana, a, a wandering ascetic called, um, in the story, Dandamos. It sounds like a probably a um, the Greek version of of this guy's name. And and he asks Alexander the Great. Why did you travel so far, all the way from Greece to India or thereabouts? I have just as much of the earth as you and every other person. Even if you gain all rivers, you cannot drink more than I. Therefore, I have no fears, acquire no wounds, and destroy no cities. I have just as much earth and water as you. Altogether, I possess everything. Learn this wisdom from me. Wish for nothing, and everything is yours. And this is this is a, a theme that that we'll explore further in. Um, Hodoroshi's further comments on on this um, 
this teaching of craving nothing. I will turn back now to to our text. Another story. There is a community in Shiga called Itoen, founded by a man named Nishida Tenko. He originally worked for a large company in Kobe that made woolen goods such as sweaters and blankets, and he was one of the managers there. But one day he suddenly left the company, went to Hokkaido with friends, that's the far northern island of Japan, and there bought a large piece of land to farm. However, the times were bad and the group's harvests on the land were continually poor. The others had families and they argued about how much to go about fixing things, saying they wanted such and such an amount in order to support their families, and in general could not come to any agreement about what to do with the land and the profits. At the end, Tenko was troubled and he found the problems impossible to resolve with the other members. They eventually quit, all of them, and that ideal village was ended. They had set out to make a perfect village, and a mere six years had passed since they began. Um, very, very few uh, efforts to, to create ideal communities um, last. Um, in the 70s there was a, um, quite a, a bout of um, communes starting and uh, most of them failed. It would be, it'd be interesting to do some research on what distinguished the ones who didn't, but my guess is that it, it might have something to do with um, having shared values. These don't have to be um, religious values in the sense of organized religion, but for a community to succeed, there's a need for some sense of um, something uh, bigger than the individual members of that community. It's something that, that um, holds people together. The, the, the problem is with um, forming an ideal village or an ideal community is that we of course take our shadow with us wherever we go and problems will arise without doubt. So, some years ago um, Richard went on a couple of uh, writing, extended writing retreats on Great Barrier and um, at a distance you might imagine Great Barrier as um, a, a kind of um, paradise, or an ideal location, beautiful island with forests and mountains, pristine beaches, um, simple life, quiet life, very little traffic. But in fact, what Richard discovered and what he heard from, from people living there was that a large number of people on Great Barrier are in dispute with their neighbours. 
over over different things, property boundaries, water and drainage issues, um, dis disputed rights of way. You have all, all these small holdings, uh, people living sort of far but close at the same time. And uh, the residents also said that that uh, drugs, alcohol, depression, and infidelity were all quite common. We we can't get away from our issues. <laughs> they they come with us wherever we go. So anyway, back to our story, Nishida Tenko. Um, after six years, um, the community fell apart. Tenko returned home penniless, with no idea of what to do next. He had no energy left to live, nor any faith left in people. He had thought that if people thought and talked about things, if they were willing to talk things out, they could make anything happen. They could have made this new village but all his hopes had been dashed. What would he do from tomorrow? He had nobody to go home to and no money for food. He sat down on the porch of a shrine and thought. He thought and thought and thought. He thought all through the night and then the dawn came and he heard a baby crying from a neighboring house. He thought, it's crying. Why doesn't its mother get up and feed it? I wonder what she's doing. Suddenly the crying stopped and he knew that the baby was being fed. Then suddenly he felt as if he had received a great blow on his back. He understood something very deeply at that moment. That baby came into this world and there was food here for it already. We come into this world as well and the air, food and water are here, provided for us, whether we think of it or not, expect it or not. This is the human source point from which we live. We are born to live, to survive as human beings. Now we'll see how this, this, this insight changed Tenko. Um, but I, I must admit to having a little, little some some doubts about this in in that there are children who are born who don't get fed who get mistreated even but we can say that for 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 Tenko something fell into place in a very profound kind of way um, just as, as Shodavarada described his own uh, realization that he never left the palm of the Buddha, suddenly Tenko was, was seeing the world in a different way, as a place with some kind of fundamental um, benevolence or, or rightness to it. Tenko felt that his life was decided with that 
and he borrowed cleaning tools from a nearby grandmother to clean up the shrine. Later, she said that her breakfast was made and invited him to eat with her. He said that he had used the shrine and that was why he had cleaned it, but that she had no reason to feed him. She told him not to be like that, and finally he agreed to eat, for he had not eaten for quite a long time. He washed his dishes after eating and saw that the toilet area was also dirty. He cleaned it, and here and there as well, as he, other saw, as he saw other things that were dirty. And finally she gave him lunch. He returned to his, his inn and asked if he could work there for no money at all, but just to be able to live there. This is where it began. For fifty years from that time, he never had a time of not eating. He started the community of Itoen, and all of its members cleaned everywhere, stations, public buildings, shrines. They raised gardens together and lived equally, working and labouring in a community way, giving their whole bodies, their entire energy in service, knowing they would be provided for through that. So suddenly there was this understanding that allowed the community to to um, coalesce and to function. Haradaraji says, when we clean up and do what is necessary, what is needed always comes. Being always satisfied looking around for where to clean next, where to straighten up next, we are able to see well and understand well where people are sad and suffering, and we have no free time for craving. This is the kind of life we must live, so says Bodhidharma. Um, there's, a, there's an American Zen poet, and. Uh, kind of a Zen pioneer, in fact, and teacher, Gary Schneider. And he says um, that Zen, basically you can boil Zen down to two activities, meditation and cleaning the temple. That's it. But then he added something which is, is very relevant to us, um, that it's up to each of us to decide how widely the temple boundaries stretch. Maybe we can see our whole neighborhood as the temple boundaries, or our city, or our country, or the biosphere. In terms of where we choose to put our energy, where we choose to um, bring our, our, our hands and eyes, put them to work. Radeyoshi continues, if nothing is craved, then this world is joyful just as it is. 
All of it is my world, and everyone in it is my child. Even the difficult and hard-to-handle children are my children. In a place called Hamanako, there was a temple named Konshi, which was surrounded by rice fields spreading far into the distance. The priest was enjoying himself, commenting on what a good harvest there was going to be there that year. Someone asked if all those fine rice fields belonged to the temple. The priest said, yes, they do. We just don't re receive the harvest from them. By the front gate of Sogenji, that's, that's Harada Roshi's monastery, we have a bank. Everyone brings money to our gate. We just don't have the bank book for getting the money out. In the spring we have the mountains of Nara full of cherry blossoms, and in fall we have the Arashiyan River full of maple leaves. At Sogenji we have all the flowers of the mountains. We just don't pick them all. We have a huge lake with a boat in it, and it is all ours. Thinking like this, we live with a great mind. This is it's really the, the epitome of, of mudita, this attitude. Rejoicing in the good fortune of all. Because we are each other. Um, Byron Katie um, says something very similar about giving. This is in a chapter um, headed up, Inconceivable Wealth. She says, every time I give something away, what comes back to me is freedom. I allow the whole world to enter the space that had been filled by my possessions. When I gave away possessing, I gained the whole world. I saw that there was nothing to possess in the first place, so everything was mine. And even though I appear to own things today, that can never be. Possessing is a state of mind. You only need to watch a building burn to understand that, or the burial of someone you love. Once you understand it, you notice that everything is yours, and that it always has been. When I drive through a neighbourhood and see a man watering his lawn, I know that it's my lawn, it's my house, it's my friend, though we've never met. I know him. He's taking care of my world. He's doing what's necessary. There's merit in all things. There's merit in every moment. There's not even a need to wake up to it, since it is what it is, whether we notice it or not. Wealth is a state of mind. If anything is held back, it's not true wealth. True wealth, the apparently meritorious state of mind, gives everything because it gives itself. It can't hold back. When the mind matches the heart, it doesn't discern right from wrong. It's completely right with itself always. It's the song of the self, the song of our true nature. 
I never have to go out of my way to think, who needs this? That's a task I would never think of taking on. My abundance is so great that it can never be spent, not even a fraction of it. Every time I spend it, it multiplies again. It's completely self-sustaining. It's a well that never runs dry. It's fun to be the richest person in the universe because you're completely at leisure, always. Your wealth can never diminish, and so you don't have to do anything for it or with it. You're simply a conduit. It's equally wonderful to be the poorest person in the universe. I own nothing, I have nothing, I am nothing, and that leaves me with everything. What I give away isn't mine. The well never stops flowing. It pours out whether or not a need is expressed. Think here of, of a koan in the Mumon Khan, Sozan and poor Seize. Seize comes to Master Sozan and he says, I'm poor and alone. I beg you, Master, please make me rich. And then Sozan says, Venerable Seize. Seize replies, Yes, Master. And Sozan says, You have already drunk three cups of the finest wine of China, but still you say your lips are not yet moistened. And in the verse, Mumon comments, Though he can hardly sustain himself, he dares to compare, to compete with the richest of men. This intimate relationship between, between our poverty and infinite riches. Now we might think that um, uh, Byron Katie is is, um, is is just saying all of this. And they're, that they're fine words, um, but she tells the story. It's um, hard to hard to um, give it credit, but but just we can um, about her herself in in when she was um, she was trying to sell um, a, a little one bedroom guest house which was next to her house. And a couple, and with came with their kids to look at the, look at the property, but um, it wasn't what they wanted. And uh, they were having a conversation uh, after they'd looked around, and um, they were doing that in the main house, which was a lot bigger. And the woman of the of this this family turned to her husband and said. I'd do anything to own a house like this, wouldn't you? They laughed and sighed. Then she turned to me, looked me straight in the eyes, and said with a smile, Would you give us your house? And then Katie said, Yes. Are you kidding? said the woman. And Katie said, No. And then she, she writes, So I gave them the house I was living in. They were amazed and so grateful. As they were moving in, they said that they loved my dog, so I gave them the dog too. At no time in this whole transaction did I think that I was doing something generous. 
The house was theirs, obviously, as soon as they asked. It was no longer mine to give. They loved it so much and I would have been a fool not to give it to them. They belonged there. I was simply recognizing that fact. There was no decision to make and this was true about my dog as well. They obviously loved him. Roxanne, my youngest, had moved out of the house many years before and I knew the dog would be happy to have young children to play with. And she comments, abundance isn't a word about to yesterday or tomorrow. It's recognized now, lived now, given now. It doesn't ever stop. It just keeps pouring itself out. Once you understand this, all striving falls away. You need only notice and let the giving happen through you, excited to see where it will go next, always knowing you'll never run out of what's needed. I think we can, this is just to, to know that this kind of attitude is possible um, can, can inspire us. <laughs> but inevitably the question, question comes from, from hearing a story like this. How did her family react? And this is, somebody asks her this question because she was married at the time to somebody called Paul. And she, she, she writes, at first, he went nuts. <laughs> he was used to my strange actions by then, but he considered this, and this is in quotes, a doozy. <laughs> According to him, our whole world was tied up in that house. But after a while, he calmed down and signed the papers. <laughs> he must have trusted me in this, in spite of what he was believing. freedom and truly having the faith that um, what what we need will arise. Master Dogen says something very similar to, to his monks, to 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 put our trust in in the unfolding of our karma, that that whatever whatever is um, is needed we will receive. That might be um, going without. It might be what we need. I think a big thing uh, which comes up for us while we while we resist this kind of um, openness is um, the the what comes with uncertainty, the not knowing where our next meal is coming from, or not knowing where we where we're going to sleep tonight. Because this 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 human um, tendency to to t cling tightly to uh, what we know and what we imagine is going to happen, what what Byron, Katie, and others have seen into clearly is a complete um, fictional nature of those ideas we have about what's going to happen, how things are going to unfold, how we will, how we will experience misfortune or good fortune. 
we we cling tightly also to our our, th our thoughts and opinions about ourselves. These are these are among the most uh, persistent and pernicious of our, our attachments. Um, probably for most of us, much more so than attachments to the to the the, the sense pleasures of different kinds in terms of the first of the five ordinary senses these ones that are to to do with our, our um, ways in which we we construct ourselves in reality uh, we we cling to them very tightly even when an, a, a belief or an opinion uh, has caused us much suffering and continues to cause us suffering still we cling to it Why is that? Well, partly it's because we haven't s seen through it. We haven't seen it, that it, oh, it's it's fictional fictional nature. We're believing it. We're believing our thoughts, and um, it comes back to this the the a fear of uncertainty that um, a familiar pain-producing opinion about ourselves um, may be preferable to um, what we imagine it's like to be lost without our sense of identity, unmoored. Without, um, not, not oriented within things. And yet, uh, from from a spiritual point of view, um, getting lost is is um, a fertile place. Going into uncharted territory where we where we is uncomfortable. We 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 was un because it's uncertain. And yet, it's it's a creative place to go. I read a little bit from a, an article um, called "The Value of Getting Lost," and this is an extract from a book um, called um, "Getting Lost Makes the Brain Go High Haywire." The, the writer is um, Will Hunt. He says, uh, Lostness has always been an enigmatic and many-sided state, always filled with unexpected potencies. Across history, all varieties of our artists, philosophers and scientists have celebrated disorientation as an engine of discovery and creativity, both in the sense of straying from a physical path and in swerving away from familiar, the familiar turning into the unknown. To make great art, John Keats said, one must embrace disorientation and turn away from certainty. He called this negative capability. That is, when a man, and this is a quote from him, is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, 
without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Thoreau, too, described lostness as a door into understanding your place in the world. Not till we are completely lost or turned around, he wrote, do we appreciate the vastness and strangeness of nature. Not till we are lost, in other words, not till we have lost the world do we begin to find ourselves and realize that where we are and the infinite realize where we are and the infinite extent of our relations all of which makes sense neurologically speaking when we are lost after all our brain is at its most open and absorbent and um, actually now uh, neuroscientists have have um, discovered a little area of the brain it's called the um, posterior superior parietal lobe which um, in uh, meditators and and people praying um, it it quietens down and its role when it is working is uh, has to do with um, spatial orientation but when meditators get concentrated or people praying then this little area um, stops its activity. Um, we, we literally um, forget about space and time and, and open up to, to something more, more um, unconstricted. But we do have to be willing to, to um, experience some discomfort and, and reassure ourselves that, that um, getting lost is, is a path to discovery and, and understanding. Our time is, is up. I'd like to just finish with um, a poem. It's called Lost, and it's um, it's an uh, an old Native American elder story which um, has been rendered into this form by. Um, David Wagner Lost Stand still The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost Wherever you are is called here and you must treat it as a powerful stranger must ask permission to know it and be known The forest breathes Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again by saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. 
Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. Moo knows where you are. The breath knows where you are. All you have to do is stop and listen. Stop and look. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. <clears throat> All beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.